my personal orientation in this work is very much animistic mm. and about our connection to the natural world. Mm -hmm. And I'm at a point where I don't like using the term natural world mm. because even saying nature implies that there's an I and there's nature. Can you say what you mean by animistic? Yeah, just that everything is imbued with spirit. Mm. And it interfaces with actually Western neurophysics right now because yeah. it's kind of, I think, this point in my journey, my understanding is if all of this experience is consciousness, yeah. then of course everything is spirit, imbued right. with spirit. And the way that people talk about God, whatever that word means, for me, the journey with psychedelics is about this remembering that we are what people call God. Mm -hmm. We're just all individual expressions of consciousness, mm -hmm. trying to understand the universe. Welcome back to the Trip Report Podcast, a production of Beckley Waves, Psychedelic Mentor Studio. Today, we're speaking with John McLean, aka The Juan McLean, an electronic music artist, DJ, and co-founder and co-owner of Cardea, a psychedelic medicine space that facilitates experiences in New York City and Jamaica. I wanted to speak with John because he has a unique lens into the emerging psychedelic world, given his role as a DJ and psychedelic facilitator in a wide range of settings. He has also had one of the most fascinating careers of anyone I have ever met. What started as a fascination with music and psychedelic states as a teenager has led to a career combining the two for more than three decades. As a Brooklyn-based DJ and producer, John has been a mainstay in the NYC music scene for decades, while also touring at legendary international venues across Europe, Asia, and North America. Since the release of his first records on his DFA record label in 2002, he has built a reputation for eclectic, genre-bending sets that have earned him residencies at iconic clubs around the world. He has also been a practitioner of Ashtanga Yoga, Zen, and trained as an ayahuascaro in the Shibibo tradition. He credits the 12-step program with saving his life and ayahuasca with renewing it. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss how the changing cultural landscape allows John to feel comfortable talking publicly about his psychedelic work a period of his life in which he experienced intense depression and occasionally contemplated suicide, his hope that his first ayahuasca experience would relieve his symptoms, only to be hurled onto a spiritual path having had his worldview and belief structure completely recast, his training in the Shipibo tradition, the authenticity, legitimacy, and originality of traditional lineage-based knowledge in a rapidly changing world, and much, much more. And now I bring you my conversation with John McLean. So we're here at Cardea and did I pronounce that right? Yeah, that's right. Sweet. Where did the name come from? It's a Greek word that means it's basically like, like a hinge. And Dimitri Mugianis, who is one of the Founders here uh -huh. is Greek, if that's not self-evident. <laughs> <his name. laughs> cool. Yeah. 
hinge. Is there a significance to that in there in, is in the work that you do? There is, here? but unfortunately, I didn't pay much attention to it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. well, that's cool. But what go what goes on here? What what is this facility and space and yeah, practice? It, it's well, for one thing, we don't call it a ketamine clinic. Mm -hmm. It is a space where we administer ketamine. Mm -hmm. We call it a ketamine space, which is maybe a, a subtle distinction, but this place was largely formed in response to this wave of ketamine clinics where people go into a clinic and it's like going, well, essentially it is going into a doctor's office. Yeah. You're in a room brightly lit with fluorescent lights. They give you a bunch of ketamine and send you home. And... I actually have friends, I've heard this story a bunch of times now where people go in and they'll have these experiences that, for the sake of conversation, I'll call psychedelic experiences, yeah. though I might have something to say about that <laughs> later. They're having some kind of experience yeah. that is like, maybe they have no reference for it. Like maybe they've never taken any kind of substance that yeah. like would alter them in this way. And I've heard stories of people being told when they brought it up with the people administering the ketamine, something to the effect of ignore that. Like mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, a side, side effect. effect yeah. yeah. That is a, an unfortunate side effect of the ketamine and coming from more psychedelic spaces, we saw that actually as maybe the most useful part yeah. of the whole ketamine experience yeah rather than something to be done away with or yeah or tried to isolate it away or yeah so we kind of capitalize on that in this space we are only administering ketamine mm -hmm. and we do both individual sessions and group sessions but we always do this kind of I was going to call it therapy. Maybe it's a kind of therapy that one of the the other founder, Ross Ellenhorn, developed called Dialogic. Mm -hmm. And it's based in open dialogue. Basically, the person coming in has a session with at least two practitioners where what the, the most common way we do it here is they'll lay out a bunch of photos. Oh, wow. And someone will pick out a photo that might speak to what they're addressing coming in. And then the other, the practitioners in the room are these kind of reflectors. And they'll basically improvisationally speak to what comes up for them mm. for, with this person choosing this photo and commenting on it. And it's this very kind of poetic process, poetic, like nonlinear mm -hmm not analytical mm -hmm. process of getting someone into this different kind of space yeah. before they go into the session. And is that a part that's done before a, a right. ketamine session? Yeah, that's yeah. done before. And then after, yeah, we, we spend time with them again and, yeah. and people, I mean, I found that people love to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, generally, I think that's totally all of our experiences. Yeah. Like when people take these things, they want to talk about it. Yeah. And I, I, I love that part. I, I find it pretty fascinating. And so, so let's reverse course a little bit. What's your story? However you want to take mm. that <laughs> intellectually, creatively, musically, therapeutically, yeah. chronologically. 
I think overall, my story is a journey of the intersection of sound and consciousness, Mm. which goes back, I'm 55. So in sometime in the late 80s, maybe 1987, me and my friend took, it was my first time taking mushrooms. He was pretty experienced with it. He also was a budding Wiccan priest. He's actually now a very powerful Wiccan priest. And he gave me a copy of Be Here Now. Nice. And I remember the conversations around him saying, you know, this can be a lot more than just like having fun or basically that I didn't understand a lot of what he was talking about at the time, but just that like, this can open up a lot mm-hmm. that's, that can be really interesting. So he was, that was my introduction to psychedelics. And at the same time, my life was music. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a teenager. Where'd you grow up? In the, always in the Boston area. Like I was born in Dorchester and then my family moved quite a bit when I was young. Uh-huh. And music was always my, like, my best friend, basically. Because I was having this experience of like going to a new school kind of every year, every other year. So by the time I got to high school, I was, this was at the advent of you know, punk rock and hardcore in the Boston area, which was a big thing. And I was, I was going to shows on the, on the weekend, skateboarding around Boston, mm-hmm. funny haircut and funny clothes. Mm-hmm. And I quickly kind of grew out of that and got into probably much more interesting kinds of music and I went to college in in Providence to Providence College and when I got there it was pretty much just a a way for me to start a band (laughs) I I got a I found a group of like-minded people and and we started this band and that was like my life and the first time we ever played first band you started yeah part of yeah, it was the only band I've ever been in, which, yeah, called Six Finger Satellite, which then we signed to Sub Pop Records. Like, it, it was kind of remarkably, I was going to say easy. It was a lot of work, but somehow it worked out in a way that doesn't seem Came real. Together. Yeah, yeah like, 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 I'll get into that in a bit. But the first time we ever played in front of people was in a, like a party in, in a house, in a basement. And, you know, we worked out all this all the songs we would play and all this stuff. And one of them was a Neil Young song. Like I had gone from like, you know, hardcore shows to like getting really into Neil Young and like I had long hair. And, and so for some reason we thought it was a good idea to take LSD before we played. This is before, you know, Ned never played in front of another person before. (laughs) And, and, and it was, I think may my recollection is we played two songs. Like we played a Neil Young song. I know we played this Neil Young song that was like one of my favorites at the time called Cortez the Killer, which had this really extended like guitar jam solo thing in the middle. I, we probably played that for like half an hour. I think it was the kind of thing where I, I, I was like, I don't know where I am right now or what we're doing. And I couldn't remember what we were doing. And that was my first experience with, how to frame this as being in an altered state, kind of channeling music and sound for a group of people in an altered state. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is when I'm, I, I was probably 19, I think, at the time. Mm-hmm. And it just la- it launched this lifelong 
fascination and even more than fa- a fascination with this way that music as played or channeled by someone who is in an altered state mm-hmm. like what wh- what is it that happens when you do that with a group of people and I, i've that's what i've been doing my entire life yeah. i mean i had some unfortunate stints working at jobs <laughs> <But> i've mostly <laughs> been really good at avoiding that my my entire life and this, that's what i've dedicated my life to nice all the way until finding myself now as you know i facilitate different kinds of well facilitate mushroom ceremonies mm-hmm. yeah I, I hesitate. I'm still not used to talking yeah. about it because I'm so used to keeping it quiet because yeah. it, uh, uh, because it's illegal. Well, maybe talk a little bit about that because just before we were about to to we hit record, you were saying that this is the first time you're publicly speaking about this side of your yeah. your work, and I imagine that you've been doing this kind of work for a while, and and, and maybe I'll, I'll ask you like what that looks like and how you got yeah. into it, but. But also maybe like, what is it about the changing environment, social landscape, cultural landscape that's affording you the chance to feel like, oh, you're able mm. to, to is, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, one, one part of my early experiences with psychedelics is actually that they were quite difficult at times. Also, now I kind of laugh thinking back when I think about like, how much mushrooms were we taking? <laughs> it was just like, we would go buy them. There was like this weekly kind of like hippie jam band, you know, would play um, called Max Creek. I actually remember it at this one club in Providence. And in the parking lot, it would be like a Grateful Dead show. It's yeah. just all these hippies out there like selling stuff. Yeah. We go and buy mushrooms. I don't know what, I think we just put our money together and it'd be like, <laughs> we have this much money, we buy this much mushrooms. And if there's four of us, we divide them just up. Just divvy it up. There's two of us, we divide them up. It just, that's, I didn't know there was something like dosage or something. <laughs> so I actually had a lot of like pretty difficult experiences. Mm. And also like really making pretty bad decisions. Like, you know, like taking acid at one in the morning at a party because someone was like, hey, I have acid. And, I was, you okay. know, at that stage in my life, I was like, yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> and then an hour later, I mean, this is actually happened is it, like r- fleeing the party and running home mm-hmm. like it, like, because I was so paranoid. Yeah. And then sitting at home in this kind of like web of, of, of a really difficult experience. Yeah. And. In hindsight, I can see what was happening. This was going hand in hand with heroin addiction. I was a pretty young IV heroin user. Mm-hmm. And when I got clean from heroin, I actually went through, it was through these pretty conventional systems mm-hmm. that was all that was available then. And, and ended up in a 12-step program, mm-hmm. which actually, you know, I would say saved my life. Yeah, um, But that was a program of complete abstinence. Yeah. And, and it also is what initiated like a real spiritual awakening for me. Like very early on, I found this book called The Zen of Recovery. Uh-huh. It was this guy in Providence, Mel Ash, who was in a re- 12-step recovery program. And it was it was a book about how Buddhism and those programs can work mm-hmm. together. 
So I got into Buddhism and meditation. I then was pretty deeply into Ashtanga yoga. Uh Like I went to India to study yoga. I was very much into eating well. I was doing all of these things and I was horrendously depressed. Vaguely, like suicidal in the sense that I held suicide as an option if things got any worse. Mm -hmm. But I was profoundly suffering Mm -hmm. and having a really difficult time just being in the world. What age is... What age age was this? This is like in my 30s at this point. Mm -hmm. And it reached a point where... I was functioning. You know, I had this music career, the second music career, making electronic music and as a DJ that on the outside, like looked very successful and and functionally it was very successful, you know, but it's like in the in-between spaces, I was home so depressed. I, I couldn't, I was finding it hard to get out of bed in the morning and I couldn't figure out why. And it got to the point where Somehow I heard about ayahuasca, Uh and now I actually, in hindsight, don't remember how that came onto (laughs) my radar, which is kind of how this stuff works, I think. But I started researching places I could go do that. Uh And for me at that time, that was, it was an incredible act of desperation. Yeah. Because I had been pretty... I'll say indoctrinated into the disease model of addiction. Mm -hmm. So this was a pretty calculated and thought out Hail Mary Mm -hmm. of like, I'm not really interested in living life the rest of my life this way. If this is, if this is the way it's going to be, I'm just not interested. Let me go do this thing. This thing could kill me, you know, like going to the jungle in Peru. Yeah. I had no idea what that meant. Yeah. You know, I was didn't. When when was this? Um, eight years ago, maybe. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Went down there, and I remember, you know, drinking the first cup of ayahuasca and thinking, like, well, there goes all my clean time from this twelve step program, mm-hmm. and all the voices that were like, I'm gonna have a needle in my arm the moment I I get mm-hmm. home, or the moment I can get it, like all of these things. And I actually had like this incredibly transformative experience. Actually, the kind of embarrassingly cliched, yeah, but like transcendently beautiful experience of literally seeing this web of love that makes up the universe, mm-hmm. basically, and feeling this goodwill towards everyone in the world that I like things I just had never felt before mm-hmm. in my life, like kind of classic ayahuasca experience yeah kind of the classic ayahuasca trick yeah because then the next night i had actually (laughs) an experience that was like literally maybe the hardest thing i've ever gone through in my life like staying up like just brutal but all of it sent me on a path that was initiated by wanting to relieve this depression yeah and it very quickly became about something else. Say more about that. What did it... I think I was thinking about it in terms of um, taking this thing that would relieve this symptom. Yeah. And I pretty quickly understood it as a kind of a spiritual path. Mm-hmm. 
and very quickly it opened my eyes to um I had never questioned like why am I depressed? Mm-hmm. You know, I had mm-hmm. I had bought into all this stuff around like there's something wrong with my brain chemistry. Yeah. Like like I messed up my brain chemistry with taking these other drugs or something or even all the psychedelics I had been taking. Mm-hmm. Like I somehow broke my my system and living in this culture and society that emphasizes this that you know if you're depressed something's wrong with you yeah like something's wrong with the chemicals in my brain i'm doing something wrong i'm thinking Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. wrong and it 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 really opened my eyes to two things that there were things that i had experienced as a child that were not held and were still kind of in my body trauma whatever you want to call it difficult Mm -hmm. experiences and at the same time i was living a life in a system that was not conducive to my leading a fulfilling life Mm -hmm. so i think it's been both this process of digging into my own i'll just say trauma and even ancestral patterns and these kinds of things but at the same time, not getting stuck in this navel-gazing place and looking outward and recognizing yeah. the systems, economic system we're living in, how I'm living socially, and, and what are those conditions that are making life pretty unbearable for yeah. me? And what can I do about both of those things? Yeah. If that makes sense. It, it, it makes complete sense. And where I'm inclined to sort of ask or, or dig into is like, you came out of that experience, it sounds like, with a renewed perspective or it feels like a kind of a, you know, a, a punctuated moment in, in your life, right? And yeah. yet it didn't necessarily change the fabric of society. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it was something about mm. the perspective or you said something that I that I'm actually thinking quite a bit about lately is like, you went in with the hope of symptom resolution Mm -hmm. and it sounds like you came out with like a restructuring of your metaphysical belief structure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot, I spend a lot of time and, and Beckley and Beckley waves, we're really concerned and focused on supporting that transformational capacity in a way that is safe and supported. And, and, but the way I, I think about it is like, can come out of these experiences with perhaps kind of making it simply positive or negative outcomes, mm. but you can also come out of it with like intended or unintended outcomes, right? And so there's mm-hmm. like the there's a sense in which we go into this with a certain desire or intent or aspiration, and there's a chance that we come out of it with a completely restructured worldview or perspective that is not the case with Prozac mm. or SSRIs or yeah. Do, does that make sense? And uh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, I think it's the nature of all psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually the reason why it seems absurd to me that pharmaceutical companies are interested in them Yeah, <laughs> because they're not, there are not, I think what you're speaking to, like really like quantifiable yeah. results. Yeah. And in fact, those unexpected 
but we have to think about it in such a different way of like pros and cons of the individual symptoms or what have you. Yeah. It, 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 and it's really like the, the substratum of how our, our experience kind of percolates up bottom up and, and, and is formed, which is something that the autonomous we or I is not really in control of. Yeah. And I think that that's the thing that's like really difficult for the Western mind, mm-hmm. maybe crudely speaking, yeah. to engage with. Well, I'm, I'm very much interested in the way that language informs our experience and our consciousness. Mm-hmm. And in, in studying training to be an, uh, a, say, an ayahuasca facilitator and learning this language of this specific indigenous tribe in Peru, mm-hmm. it has been very informative for me in it, what that looks like. Like, I, I see how a language like English and our rational minds that we have all inherited in these mm-hmm. frameworks and in this biblical framework that we've inherited, which is very much about like this and that. It can be this thing or it can be that thing, good and bad. Mm-hmm. It's a very binary, binary way yeah. of speaking that I think worked very well on the Senate floor thousands of years ago. And now we're at this point where I think it's led to this. It's run its course. Yeah, like literally the, potentially the end of the human race. Yeah. Whereas I actually, I, I had an experience recently where I found myself in this mindset, very simple thing where I actually, after an ayahuasca ceremony that I was sitting in, that a friend was facilitating, who's very experienced and had been living in the, in the jungle for years and had just come out of the jungle. So it was very immersed in that framework. And after she said, you know, I, I saw, I forget which colors, like a lot of blue and red around around you and 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 I my without thinking I said, Oh, what does that mean? And she just smiled and was like, hmm, yeah. You know? <laughs> I was like, right. Like my sense is the more indigenous, like someone from the Amazon perspective, mm-hmm. is to relate to these things more kind of relationally and like what is your experience when you mm-hmm. experience when you see the jaguar or a snake mm-hmm. or something. And we, as Westerners, want to snap to this thing that's like, oh, what does that thing what mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? Yeah. What does that say? And then follow it's, and then follow this train of thought of meaning. And, yeah. And we've lost this ability to just experience. To completely erode the direct experience of yeah. what is felt or. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I see it play out in all aspects of life of, it's the nature of conflict. It's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. either be this or that. Mm-hmm. You can either be for the Palestinians or you can be for the Israelis mm-hmm. or like what side are you on? Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. an inability to hold that many things can be true yeah. at the same time yeah. and just experience. And then somehow this feels related is as a facilitator of these things. It's been a real journey for me and a struggle to navigate. People are generally coming to me because they're suffering. Mm-hmm. Because we've sold this story around psychedelics that they can relieve your suffering, which is partly true. They're mainly coming to relieve their suffering. 
And I think there is a usefulness to things like depression and anxiety because they... They're in, they're, it's information. Yeah, it's information yeah. about that something's not right. Yeah. So what role am I playing by relieving that suffering in the moment? Mm -hmm. Is it so that they can go back into a system that's traumatizing them mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and be able to tolerate it better? Yeah. And I don't have a good answer. It's just yeah. the, it's, it's a question. Yeah. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about the process of becoming a facilitator and what led you to go down that path? And yeah, after my first ayahuasca experiences in the jungle, I came back and I was pretty, <laughs> I drank a lot of ayahuasca and I think I was like walking around Brooklyn still kind of like seeing things like patterns and, yeah. and things everywhere. And it didn't really freak me out so much as I, I needed, I was looking for context yeah. and I actually wanted to pursue it. And I, I was still in this kind of very naive mindset of like, oh, I need to go down there. Like the only real legitimate experience I can have with this stuff is in the jungle, mm -hmm. which I very much don't believe anymore. Um, but someone told me about, and, and I just have to be a little bit careful about how I talk about this, about someone else here who was facilitating ayahuasca ceremonies in a way that really honored a tradition in Peru and had been handed down teachings. So th there was a direct transmission mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. that tradition to this person and these people here. Someone hooked me up with them, and this person pretty quickly suggested that I go down there to study with their teacher, mm -hmm. which at the time, I was like, I'm just trying to like get on the subway, <laughs> you know, like I don't, I, like, but they saw, I, I see now what they saw yeah. in me, which just goes back to my ability to sort of channel plants with sound. Mm -hmm. And that's what these people, like in the Shipibo tradition, are doing. Their ayahuasca ceremonies are strictly singing. You know, mm -hmm. there's no instrumentation. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's something coming through your body, and it's being transmitted through your voice into a room. Mm -hmm. And I was, that's what I had done my whole life. Yeah. You know, it's like kind of like holding space for people in altered states. Mm -hmm. And also, I should add, while being in an altered state, mm -hmm. which is something I'm very interested in, I don't know if I'm going off on a tangent now. Tangents are <laughs> with, well, with well, the, well the, regarded here. The medicalization of um, psychedelics. I mean, among the many things that I see wrong with it, there's a distinction that I'm really fascinated by, which is in the Western medical legal model, and in I would say in a lot of like underground schools of thought would be that you as the facilitator, the person holding space, absolutely does not take the substance with the person. Mm -hmm. And probably if you're doing what's called trip sitting, maybe that's actually true because mm -hmm. maybe there's really no need to do that. But if you're doing something like holding a ceremony or, you know, where you're like playing music or singing for people or mm -hmm. somehow like actively guiding people, 
the other more traditional model is that you take the substance as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the traditional way of doing ayahuasca was... Was the shaman. The shaman took, took the, it yeah. and you just lied there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they very quickly realized that Westerners were not interested we're not. in that, which is another st story. But I think about this quite a bit and where this is going with the medical yeah. stuff and think about like, I don't want to be taking mushrooms or LSD or, or MDMA and have two sober people watching me mm -hmm. in a room while I by myself have this experience. It, mm -hmm. it seems bizarre to me. Mm -hmm. And there's something, well, there's a lot of things that happen when we've taken these things together, that I think a lot of it transcends probably the rational mm -hmm. scientific mind. Mm -hmm. It's just something I'm really interested yeah. in. Yeah. Going back to the themes that I'm thinking about and researching and, and working on is the variety of what you call wraparound containers, and by which I mean the setting, the intention, the environment, the theoretical or spiritual context or orientation. I, I think it's super interesting that, and it's already happening. Like even the way you described the, the modality that's used here, there is like this Cambrian explosion of like combinations of, for lack of a better phrase, like therapeutic framework, dosages, medicine, mm. individual, couple, group, yeah, one facilitator, several, you know, there's all these permutations of this experience and that includes the, both the logistical and the practical, but also the intentional or the, the way in which it's one is kind of entering the the experience and what they believe mm. is like happening. Mm. It could be a very like reductive neuroscientific thing. Like, oh, I'm going in to open up my neural pathways and yeah. make them more malleable so my that I can- mode network. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I can reduce the ego and, yeah. and create some malleability and open my, you know, period of metaplasticity or, or on the other hand, sort of, commune with God, right? Like mm -hmm. to kind of draw the most uh, yeah. orthogonal perspective. And some of these will fit within a medical system and some of them will not. And some of them will not fit within a traditional shamanic lineage or whatever. Yeah. I don't know if I'm making sense at all, or, but, but it yeah. just seems like there is a, a Cambrian explosion, if you will, of ways in which this experience can and will be facilitated, administered, delivered. And I don't know, it, it, yeah. it just, it, it, it simultaneously feels exciting and, and fragile. And I don't know, I'm getting into like weird territory here, but like robust, yeah. like the fact that these things can exist in many different permutations feels like a way in which they're preserved. If that, yeah. in a weird way, you know, like I, I'm an acupuncturist by training and like, yeah. There's no such thing as traditional Chinese medicine. Yeah. There are thousands <laughs> yeah. of, you know what I mean? Like lineages. Yeah, yeah. And so it's on the one hand, it's tough to point to like the real thing. Yeah. But there is no real thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? There are. Oh, yeah. 
I, again, I'll stop talking now. No, I take that, it that way. That absolutely. But I do want to offer one of those ingredients, if you will, is obviously sound and yeah. music. Yeah. So maybe we can turn our direction yeah. to, to that. Well, there, there's so much in what you just said around. Yeah, I can't stop talking. Around, I have a problem. <laughs> like, <laughs> around, like, you know, even what's called set and setting. And in this idea of, I was going to say legitimacy and authenticity and in origin. This is another thing I really struggle with, a question mm. I struggle with. And I've gone through this with Ashtanga Yoga, mm-hmm. where, you know, Patabi Joyce kind of created this system to interface with Westerners. Yeah, yeah. And you could say to sell to Westerners. Yeah. Because Westerners come in and it's this this instance where, you know, the Westerners, this Indian culture where maybe people have so little. Mm-hmm. And then you're interfacing with these Westerners who are, you know, have on a pair of shoes that cost as much as, you know, an Indian person might make in a month or something, whatever, that economic disparity. So they create these systems to interface with these Western people. And then somewhere down the road, it's popularized and people are talking about like this traditional yoga. It's like, no, this is not, it's actually a corruption at the core. And I'll just say with the, say, the Shipibo lineage, the Shipibo tradition of ayahuasca, it's like, no, that there were no ceremonies like this until Western people came. Yeah. And they also saw an opportunity to make money. Yeah. Like and and again, I I'm not gonna fall into the either or right. trap because at the same time there's been enormous value in both of those things. Mm-hmm. I see those things benefiting people. Do you think it's in the direction of accurate to say that there are foundational principles that yeah. maybe are traditional that then can be reinterpreted in more modern sense. And so it's not the necessarily the trappings or the, this is a much more nuanced conversation, but it feels like there are principles, whether we're talking about healing or spiritual journey that are are, are perennial or like kind yeah. of, I don't want to say universal, but they'll show up in Tibetan culture and they'll show up yeah. in the Amazon and they'll mm-hmm. show up in China and they'll show up yeah. in, in Africa and Europe. You know what I mean? This is when it gets into, I think like personal for me, like my personal yeah. kind of ontological orientation Yeah, because at the end of the day, I'll say with ayahuasca the, and the other, there are these other plants that, we use mm-hmm. with ayahuasca that we, you know, diet and say mm-hmm. become part of us. The plants are the teachers. Mm-hmm. Even our main teacher says the plants are the teachers. So you, you go down to these camps and they're like little schools and you spend a lot of time like just in isolation and silence in isolation, mm-hmm. receiving the messages of, of the plants same thing someone's asking me you know in a mushroom ceremony it's very musically oriented so i'll play like maybe like 15 to 20 or more different instruments in the course Mm -hmm. so i've become this like multi-instrumentalist and people will say like you know wow how how do you learn how to play those things in that way 
And my answer is the mushrooms taught me. Mm-hmm. And that is an actual truth. Like whether people can hold that or not yeah. doesn't much matter to me, but it is a literal truth of, you know, I play a lot of flute in it and I just spend time taking mushrooms and playing the flute. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. Like I've not taken, I, I, I took one flute lesson actually for a couple of weeks ago to see what would happen. And, and a couple of instrument, you know, percussion things that are more technical and whatever, but most of it is being taught by the mushrooms or the ayahuasca and the messages that they bring for me are pretty universal. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Stan Groff has this thing about psychedelics being a nonspecific amplifier. Mm -hmm. I actually don't agree with that entirely. Oh, interesting. Um, I think that's a pretty, like, actually, I think that's a pretty Western Mm. kind of psychological, rational viewpoint. Maybe I'm going to be the one person that disagrees with Stan Groff. I'm not 100%. I've heard that before. Oh, really? I'm I'm racking my brain trying to... Yeah. And it was recently, too. Well, he and he's a very... You know, maybe this is part of the conversation that he's like... I was going to say he's a very far more experienced, learned guy than me. Yeah. But my experience is of these universal things that come through around... I don't know, connectedness, mainly for me, and this is like my personal orientation in this work, is very much animistic Mm. and about our connection to the natural world. Mm -hmm. And I'm at a point where I don't like using the term natural world, Mm. because even saying nature implies that there's an I and there's nature. Can you say what you mean by animistic? Yeah, just that everything is imbued with spirit Mm. and it interfaces with actually Western neurophysics right now, because it's kind of, I think this point in my journey, my understanding is if all of this experience is consciousness, then of course everything is spirit imbued with spirit. And the way that people talk about God Whatever that word means, for me, the journey with psychedelics is about this remembering that we are what people call God. Mm -hmm. We're just all individual expressions of consciousness Mm -hmm. trying to understand the universe. Mm -hmm. So that's only to say that in that journey, if that's my orientation then the stuff that people say doesn't really mm. matter so much, mm-hmm. you know, and like all these funny frameworks for things that mm-hmm. we have. And mm-hmm. they do. I think you were speaking to this, I think, about even expectation and the way we set these things yeah. up, the sessions yeah. up. And it's so true. And I especially think this around healing. Like we're so focused on using these things for trauma and yeah. healing. Yeah. And they're great for that. But also, what about like recapturing joy? Yeah. What about like, oh, I want to remember when I was a kid and I would ride my bike and not have a care in the world. Well, it's also pointing to the inability to separate those things, right? Like, it seems like that just, again, going to the nature of language is to compartmentalize or put in a box Mm. depression or PTSD or something like that. Yeah. And 
is going back to what we were talking about earlier. Like those are the terms that we use for this experience that emerges in a ecological complex series of relationships between individuals and societies and cultures and environments. And so I, I, I do want to get into this. You've used a few terms and, and that are really salient for me right now in, in my own journey and, and in around the, the relationship with the direct experience of the body, broadly speaking, mm. in and out of a, a, a yeah. journey experience, and the role of sound in that. Mm. Yeah, I think at this point in time, our great affliction all of us is our inability to tolerate what's coming up in our bodies, mm-hmm. what I would call distress intolerance. Mm-hmm. And it's as simple as like it, distress intolerance. Yeah. That's fucking brutal. That's a yeah. good one. Yeah. I, I love like that, that actually. I use that quite a bit. Yeah. That's really good. And we have formed this culture around it's pretty much devoted to assuaging discomfort yeah yeah so it's even as simple as you're sitting on the subway i find it super dark sitting on the subway and i look up and every person is looking at their phone and then i sit and i'm like why do i want to look at my phone right now it's like i don't know like because it's not interesting what's happening on the subway Mm -hmm. my board there's something uncomfortable about being on the subway so it's just a practice, which seems absurd even saying it, is just to sit without looking at my phone mm-hmm. and noticing what comes up in my body, mm-hmm. like whatever the dis- discomfort is. Mm-hmm. I think the more you do that, the more, it's, it's like a muscle that you're exercising. Yeah, totally. And the more you go in the opposite direction of like just watching all this content, being online all the time, the kind of food we eat, substances like alcohol and Honestly, cannabis now, big ones. We will be experiencing pain and discomfort all of our lives. Like that is not going away. It's never going away. So for me, the game is like, and I've always been prone to really extreme, as I've already said, like extreme practices Mm -hmm. like Zen Buddhism or initially, and then Ashtanga yoga, you know, like all of these things. And I find that the more you can put yourselves to these really distressing experiences and be present for them, which is also the psychedelic experience. Come out on the other side, I think, freer. Like, I think there's a a liberation there. And the liberation is not finding an answer. Like, that's what the wellness industry is based in. Like, Mm -hmm. there's some answer or self-help out there that will... There's a solution. There's a solution to the pain. It's like, there's no solution. Same thing with darkness. It's like the darkness is not going away. Yeah. And we've demonized darkness and and propped up the light yeah. so much. It's like, no, they're both intricately related. Yeah. If you can become more comfortable with the darkness or even love the darkness mm-hmm. or appreciate pain, you know. Like there's so many practices. Like if 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 I knew that I were dying in an hour, mm-hmm. I would be so happy for whatever pain I was experiencing, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, I mean, not to, now I'm going to go on many tangents, but (laughs) ultimately for me, 
so much of this, so much of like the horrors of capitalism and colonialism and many of these things is about our inability to reconcile ourselves to the fact that we're going to die. Mm -hmm. And even spiritual practices, to be honest, there's a, I think, mis, misrepresenting of karma, of many things that imply that like our individuated egoic consciousness will somehow survive. It just will be like, I'll be in the body of a cat with a different set of different yeah, nervous system yeah, or something. Right. It's like, I'll just speak for me. No, I don't, I don't hold that. I yeah. hold that you return to something that my individuated consciousness, egoic consciousness will yeah. not survive that. Well, it also, I mean, this is getting beyond my level of development, but, but you know, a lot of the practices and, and spiritual traditions, their practices is to show you that it doesn't survive scrutiny of your own looking for it. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, you just, just looking for where, where do I exist? Like, yeah, I can't find it. No. You know what I mean? I can't find the little no. mini me sitting behind my eyes that is pulling the, yeah. str the strings of thought or behavior or, you know yeah. what I mean? I think we get glimpses of it. Like, yeah. that's, that's the terrifying part totally. about ego death experiences, what people call ego death experiences or death experiences with psychedelics. But even having those, there's still a, someone experiencing it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. it becomes just some weird mind game. Yeah. It's and a it, loop. Yeah, it's yeah. a loop. It's, it's a, a loop. feedback loop that you'll never get out of. Yeah. And I think it all just boils down to really basic principles that are just like, for me, it's really just come down to breathing, mm -hmm. conscious breathing, and presence, mm -hmm. being present with whatever's coming up in the moment. Mm -hmm. You know, like right now I'm a little cold because we turned the heat off. Mm -hmm. uh, like, <laughs> but that's actually a good example because no, it is a great practice example, of like, like it. Yeah. do I want to turn the heat back on? Yeah. Do I want to put a coat on me? Or am I okay I just... just feeling this little yeah. bit of cold yeah. and noticing it, yeah. you know, yeah. and actually kind of rejoicing in... Like I'll never get this moment back, totally. and I'm alive, yeah. and have this consciousness, and it's it's a real like. M there's a transcendent beauty and magic to it, and all kinds of things, mm -hmm. and that to me is that, to me is my work as a facilitator. Mm -hmm. Is my bottom line is is about like bringing beauty. Mm -hmm. There's so much to despair about. Like there's so much oh, totally. that seems like the end of the world. Yeah. Maybe it is. I don't know. There's so much to blame, to blame capitalism, to blame racism, like all the isms. There's war and digging into sides and arguments and all of those things are just not for me. And yeah. for me, it's how can I bring beauty, which is not always nice and pleasant, but how and beauty just is just this awakening to the miracle of being alive like mm -hmm. right now yeah yeah that's rad with oh titan my gift is i can i can do that very well with music yeah. and sound that's something that i've put a lot of work into and dedicated my life to and that's my offering yeah it's my offering like when i was playing in bands when now like as a DJ, 
it's as a facilitator of ceremonies it's it's about this this remembering beauty what's occurred to me recently is that for probably the last 10 years the majority of my listening has been to podcasts yeah <laughs> yeah you know what i mean and i actually think that there is a muscle that has atrophied or a you know a receptive you know a muscle of receptivity rather than action you might say yeah. that that is atrophied and, what, what, and and basically you know when you're listening to other people talk it's like yeah. you're feeding the rational problem solving yeah logical side of of myself and so i've just noticed i mean now intentionally choosing to like if i'm going to listen to something it's going to be music or sound yeah but for the uninitiated and i would put myself into this category of learning to feel how something like music or sound impacts this maybe not the right word shows up in in the felt experience yeah give my rational mind the primer of your perspective philosophy mm. approach well i would say even even just forgetting about psychedelics for yeah. a moment. You know, sometimes I'll do these, what's called a sound bath now or a mm-hmm. sound journey. So there's no medicine involved. Mm-hmm. So you lie down and someone's playing these instruments and it's just a matter of noticing what's happening with you. It's just the presence of like, oh, do I start thinking about stuff? Like, oh, what am I going to do next week? Or, oh, I really want to see this movie. What am I going to eat after this? Oh, this person said something to me a week ago or something. Like, do you go into your mind, Mm -hmm. which is a form of dissociation from Mm -hmm. the body? Mm -hmm. Maybe something's coming up in your body. Like, I need to get out of here. Like, I can't lie here. Like, you Mm -hmm. get agitated. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you're just happy. Like, Mm -hmm. I love the sound of that Mm -hmm. gong or something. You're just in it. But it's just, it's simply a meditated practice of presence of what is happening right now yeah what's happening which we don't ask when we're looking at a phone or doing other things and and then just breathing Mm -hmm. you know just noticing your breath and like all right i'm in my head right now let me just breathe feel the breath going into my body and listen to this sound and maybe those intrusive thoughts flutter away for a moment come back but it's just simply noticing what comes up these really basic things it's such a basic formula like there's no secret simple it's too simple like people don't want to believe it like they want to go buy something or hire somebody or something but it it really is just the breath and being present yeah it's interesting because it feels like there is at a macro cultural level I, I, the body keeps a score, yeah. you know, the book by Bessel van der Kolk was yeah. published, I think in 2010 or so. And I feel like that has been adopted by the culture, right? Yeah. And, and maybe it's just, it's limited to the concept of like trauma is stored in the body and that can mean several, but what, yeah. what we're talking about here is sort of like experience it. This is going to sound so weird. I don't even know if we're going to leave this in Aaron, but what we're talking about is, I, I mean, even as I'm fumbling to make this sort of logical connection, I can feel my body tense up. Yeah. Right. Like I'm, I'm, I sense, I'm sensing the discomfort in my, in my tissue, 
in my nervous system and my body because I feel like I'm not going to, you know, get this right or nail it or something. Yeah. But at the same time, that's exactly what is the most alive thing for me right now. Yeah. And if I just try to ignore it or talk around it, yeah, it's so simple. Yeah. <laughs> it's so yeah. it's, it's just, really it's it, it and I, yeah. it's so simple yeah i think it's just all of it speaks to like how far afield we've gone with yeah. like rationalism and to blame descartes i guess right. for starting all this <laughs> or like even th talking about the body i went through this whole experience around like during a period of isolation where i was like how peculiar is it that we have a word for body in a way? And we talk about my body. Yeah. Be to me, that implies some kind of separateness. Separation, like, right? Yeah. Oh, there's my body, but then what else is there? Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. That might be my own funny take on it. Well, you know, there's a, there's a meditation practice that I've been doing recently, which is placing my attention on the boundaries of the body. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, yeah. And it turns out that I can't feel the bound, but I can see it in my mind. You know, like I'm, mm. I'm projecting an image of, if I put my awareness into the sensation of my chest, for example, like it's actually mm. unclear where my sensation of my body, yeah. quote unquote, ends. Yeah. But there's also a mental image of wearing a shirt and like, yeah you know, my skin and what's, and the air that's, you know. Yeah. And there are times where that is the most like mind blowing recognition, yeah. you yeah. know, to periodically make. Yeah. And, and I feel like those types of eureka moments or ahas are like overlooked mir miracles, but it's like yeah. fucking right there. Yeah. And I'm walking around and it, it it's just, it's, I, I don't know, it's crazy. It blows my mind. I mean, to me, that that's available at all, you know, yeah. all the time. It's really, it's fucking cool. <laughs> what that speaks to, to me, is like that, like to me, the great folly is this thinking that somehow we're separate, like not just from the earth, but what's called Gaia, like extends, yeah. it's just all, all, yeah. whatever that means, yeah. that we're separate from it. And that to me speaks to that of like, yeah. if you really meditate on it, you actually, it's hard to conjure a separation. Yeah. And it's, it's like your finger saying like, ah, oh, I can't, am I part of this other stuff around mm -hmm, it? You know, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. somehow being distinct. And, you know, if everyone were doing a practice like that, like maybe we wouldn't be treating the earth like a, yeah. an ATM for natural resources. It also points to like this, going back to the idea of intention or like we go in to, the, the way that this feel, this, this psychedelic thing is like emerging into the culture is like as a solution to a set of problems or symptoms. Right. right? Yeah. And it, it, it can feel very transactional in the sense that like, I'm, I want to get this result. Whereas what I've found in, it took me a long time and a lot of pain and difficulty to realize this is like, for me, at least I'll speak for myself, like a orientation of exploration yeah. feels more um, productive in that vein. Yeah. Right? Like, like yeah. it's counterintuitive. There's like a, 
a, a theme of like, you know, if you're, if your goal is to be happy, you're going to miss the mark. <laughs> yeah. But like if happiness yeah. is a byproduct of serving others yeah. or going for, you know, your dreams or whatever, you know, whatever the yeah. case may be. But I am here now realizing we want to be mindful. You have a, oh, yeah. a journey yeah. that you're facilitating. Yeah, I'm writing a ketamine journey <laughs> after all that talk, whatever, whatever that means. <laughs> uh, so I, I suppose we can land this plane and start to wrap up with, for you, for your organization here, for your practice of facilitating shows and music and, yeah. and healing journeys what's the next five or ten or twenty years what's the future look like <laughs> oh i'm not a great person with the future <laughs> <laughs> which doesn't bode well for my non-existent retirement plan either <laughs> as i find myself somehow being 55 years old i've been in this process of like profound transformation of consciousness. And I, my only answer is I'm just trying to be present for it mm -hmm. and play my part in it. And I have dedicated my life to helping other people on that journey. Mm -hmm. That's all I can really <laughs> say about it. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Good I don't have a lot of answers. Noble, noble pursuit. Yeah, for sure. Well, really appreciate having us here. And, yeah, thanks and, for having and the me. conversation and yeah. willingness to share your story and your experience. And yeah, it's been great. Yeah, that, thanks for having me. That yeah. was great. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Trip Report. We hope you enjoyed it. You can sign up to receive our free newsletter and get the podcast sent directly to your inbox by going to thetripreport.com. This podcast is a production from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. If you're interested in learning more about building companies in the psychedelic space, head over to beckleywaves.com to get in touch. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. I'm Zach Hegney. The Trip Report is produced by Cooler Production Company, with coordination from Caitlin Jabari. See you next time.